0: Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today I have the one and only Dr. Bill Campbell, on the podcast to dive into his latest creation, Body by Science. If you don't know who Bill Campbell is, he is a professor. He is a researcher at USF, and he runs the Physique Lab. So it is like one of the only laboratories, a college laboratory in the entire country that is completely committed and dedicated to physique development, meaning nutrition, supplementation, and training for muscle growth and fat loss, which means his research some of the most applicable research for what we do in tailored coaching method um, as far as our coaching goes, but also our content creation. So for all you guys listening, he's the go-to researcher that you guys are gonna love. In fact, I've reviewed so much of his research already and used it in, in so much of our content. And we've even had him on the podcast a couple times. So some of you guys might be familiar. If you're not go check out the other episodes with him. I think we've had him on twice, maybe three times, and they're amazing episodes. Uh, but he just came out with a research review. And it is uh, one of the coolest research views out. It's one of the most affordable. It's only $6.99 a month right now if you get in quick. Um, It's only that way for another week or two. So I would highly suggest doing so um, because, again, it's one of the most affordable. But it's the most applicable because he only talks about stuff that is going to relate to you if you want to lose fat, build muscle, and improve your physique through training, nutrition, and supplementation. But one of the coolest things that he does, and we're going to dive into this today, is that it's not just a researcher talking about it. It's a researcher describing the study, explaining the interpretation, going over charts and applications of it, and then he brings in a coach, an expert coach in the field to actually apply this information, which is extremely helpful because if you read a researcher's interpretation who has no experience of coaching, and Bill actually does have experience coaching, but there are many researchers who do not, their interpretation application is amazing, especially their interpretation. The application is good, but the application of an expert coach who uses evidence-based practices is extremely helpful for a coach that needs to know how to take science and research and actually use it in the field because sometimes it's used completely different and, or can't be used at all, which is why this is so cool. And, and I had the honor of actually being featured in an issue. And I went over his research, uh, review on volume inside of training program design and ketogenic diets for fat loss. And I was able to give my own article explaining the application of these two things. And it was the most recent, uh, issue that aired, I believe, um, but you'll be able to access that. There's actually a free issue on his site, which we'll cover as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about Body by Science, and then we're going to dive into some specific studies, one on processed foods and how those can uh, influence a diet negatively when you're trying to develop your physique. Um, we are also going to talk about detraining, so taking three weeks off the gym, and does it ruin your gains or enhance your gains and what that looks like? And then last but not least, a new diet break study that was done on females looking for fat loss and the positive benefits he saw with that, which is, is in review, so it's not even published yet. But you are going to get the sneak peek of that. So we're going to cover a lot in this episode. Um, I had a blast. I always have a blast with Bill, and I'm really excited about his project. I get nothing from it for you guys to signing up for it. I just truly believe in it, and it's extremely affordable. So head over to uh, Bill Campbell's website and check out Body by Science, his research review, his monthly research review, which is all in the description of this episode. All right, this intro is way too long, so let's get into the episode with the one and only Dr. Bill Campbell. All right, Bill, it is great to have you Back on the podcast, I don't. I'm gonna stop counting at this point because um, after you know, actually, we we just recently hit three million downloads, which was like a really big mark for us. We're growing and we're seven hundred something episodes, almost eight hundred episodes at this point. I'm not. I'm I'm very selfish with who I like to be on the podcast, and I'm just gonna keep bringing on my favorite people because I have a few, hey. <laughs> a handful of guys that I just keep bringing on because they're 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 really enjoyable to talk about. So, um, if anybody listening right now doesn't know who Bill Campbell is. Go check out the last uh, episode, two episodes, three episodes, however many we've done together. Um, They're amazing, but he is a researcher and he is a researcher specifically in the physique world. So he's one of the, I would say one of the most applicable um, researchers and content creators for our audience, which um, always makes me very excited. because that's the kind of research I like to uh, dive into. And um, recently, this is what we're going to talk about first, is Body by Science. Recently, you came out with a new, um, I guess you could call it a product, a research review, which I am a huge fan of, and I often tell people to go subscribe to any of them. I've been saying it for years, um, and I'm excited that you have one now, and I'm honored that I got to be a part of the recent uh, issue. But start by telling us what Body by Science is and and why you built it in the first place. Why did you decide to create it?
1: Yeah. So uh, thank you. And anytime you send me an invitation to be on your podcast, uh, I'm, I am there. So <laughs> if you send the invitation, I'm on. Uh, so Body by Science is what most people would call a research review. And there are several great ones in our space, as, as you know. And it's, it's basically the way that I describe it. It's a lot of people, fitness professionals or bodybuilders, um, physique athletes, they don't have the time to stay on top of the research
0: because it is a very
1: time-consuming endeavor. So what I like to, to think is, let me do that and let me choose the most relevant studies. And I think you can appreciate the studies that are embodied by science. There's only two a month, so it's not like I'm doing 10. But the studies that I'm putting in there, they are the studies that have been historical landmark studies, or they're the most impactful studies that have been published in the last few months. And in some cases, there are studies that haven't even been published yet, that just because I'm in the, the space... I have seen them before they hit uh, the, the academic journals, so it's me bringing you the most impactful, laser-focused physique research. And I take a lot of pride in breaking it down so that you do not have to be an expert in reading research. In fact, that's if 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 I'm not doing my job, if you don't understand what the study was about and what the applications were, or what the conclusions were, so. I'm, I'm finding the most relevant, life-changing physique research, making it very easy to understand. And I, the next thing I'll say is what I think is the most valuable aspect of it, and this is where you you come in, I break down the research, the studies, and I say, hey, here's what the researchers did, here's what they found, here were the results, but I bring in experts, when I say experts, I mean, the, 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 the world's experts in this space. So some of them are physique coaches. Some of them are scientists. Some of them are registered dietitians. Some of them are physicians. So all of these people, they are now saying, okay, Dr. Campbell, you just summarize the study. Here's how I would apply this for my clientele, or here's how I would apply this in my own life. And that is the value because again, just reading research and getting the results it's not enough. You need ideas. To, you need stimulation of how would you apply this? And I love it when people, my, when my experts say, yeah, yeah, that's great that the researchers did this, but this is not how I would utilize it. I would do this. So if you're a fitness professional, especially if you're a physique coach, I think it's a must have product. And, and I, I, don't, I emailed you and we talked well over a year before I launched. And I don't know if your people know this, but you, you gave me a lot of confidence because I'm not an entrepreneur. Um so I wanted to thank you 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 have me you gave me some great suggestions on all things business again that just does not come naturally to me. So I wanted to thank you um for for having a big impact on me you know a year before this thing ever was launched.
0: So thank you. Yeah. Well I appreciate you uh even saying that cuz it was I was very excited that you asked me. Um, it, it was an honor to, uh, to give any advice on that. And then it was an honor to be a part of it too and be able to write with it. And I think one of the things that you just said that I love so much and that I appreciate and respect about bodywear science is number one, the simplification of it. Like you said, you really emphasize that there of how you're trying to simplify it. Because I think people underestimate how hard interpreting straight research can actually be. And we actually did, uh, our chief science officer, um, Dr. Brandon Roberts, who I'm sure you know of, he, he did a, a lecture about interpreting research for our team and stuff. And it's just like, it's, it can be so complicated. So to have somebody, instead of teaching people how to interpret it, having somebody interpret it properly for you is such a game changer. Um, and then, like you said, the application part is huge. I think that there's a couple other research reviews, um, I'm subscribed to quite a few actually, but um, there's a couple that do a decent job at this, but I will say there's still a difference between a somebody who is just a researcher applying the information and somebody who is a coach in the trenches applying. Both are, are very helpful, um, but I, I've found that, listen or reading yours and seeing the applications from the people that have been in it um steve and lauren and paul like when you see it from them it really does help quite a bit um hopefully for me for those of you listening i I was a part of that too uh because it's a little bit different it's a little bit different than reading something and applying what you think you would do in theory right because if you're a researcher not coaching people which is understandable it's in theory, you're applying this in theory, but it is different when it is in uh, the actual trenches. So I love that part about, it. it's one of my favorite parts about your research you specific- uh, specifically.
1: Yeah. Th- thank you. And like I said, I'm not a, I don't coach clients. I mean, I have in the past just to really just to give me ideas for research, but I'm not a physique coach. So getting, getting, I, but I am a, I'm a, I'm a lifestyle bodybuilder, or I don't know what you'd call me. A <laughs> non-competitive, I want to look the part so hearing what you say and how you interpret it, what you've learned over your many years of working with clients, like that impacts me. The research does too, but the application from a coach. And I mean, <laughs> it's that application part is, I just love it. Uh, it's, it's, it's the most valuable part of, of the product.
0: Yeah. I, I, uh, I always say I am a recreational physique athlete. That way if people ask, I'm like, I just do it because I'm not, I have no plans of it competing ever again, but I am very interested in the science of bodybuilding, so I continually train for it. Um, One thing I do want to do before, we have uh, a list of topics to cover today. Um, I wanted to bring this up first because I wanted to tell people where they could find Body by Science before we get to the end of the podcast because I want to dive into some specific studies, some of which you've covered in uh, the issue so they can get an idea of it, Um, but the Body by Science is super, super easy to access, and it's extremely affordable so I want you to be able to tell everybody where they can find that right now before we get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast so they can go check it out. So where can everybody find it and what is the actual price for Body by Science?
1: So, yeah, so you go to my website. My website is BillCampbellPhD.com. And I actually have the inaugural issue for free just in case you wanted to try it out. So right at the top, just click at the top. Uh, you, you join my newsletter. You get the, the inaugural issue for free. So BillCampbellPhD.com, or if that's too much to remember, just direct message me on Instagram, BillCampbellPhD, say, hey, how do I get your research review? And I'll, I'll tell you how to do it through Instagram. The cost, I, I have a launch price uh, at 6.99 a month. At some point, and again, I don't know exactly when, I always said within two months, but I'm going to raise the price. Still, it will still be affordable. And my goal is to keep this – to put this in every fitness professional's hands, and I wanted to price it at a level where price wouldn't be a barrier for people to purchase it. So I hope that's the case, Um, and right now it's $6.99, and it it will be for at least the next few weeks.
0: Definitely go check that out. I will put the link in the description of this podcast. You guys can go right there. You can check out the free issue. Um, You guys have heard it for those of you listening, you have heard me say this so many times, research reviews are the way to go because trying to go to PubMed and expecting to get a lot of information out of it for yourself to apply is, you're shooting bullets in the dark. It's just not going to work very well. Going to a research view speeds you so far ahead. And if you were a coach and you're making money off of coaching, this is just part of your due diligence. So $6.99 a month is just absolutely ridiculous for the amount of value and insight in there. And I will say this too, like other research reviews, um, there's always... uh, a lot of shameless plugs here. And and just for you guys know, I don't get anything out of you getting this actually. I don't have a special link. I don't have a coupon code. I don't get anything. So we don't know if a, a million people get this or two people get this from me. Um, I just really believe in this product that much. But there's a lot of uh, research reviews that will have more topics. They're also more expensive, but they have more topics. Usually it's because they have multiple contributors, right? That are contributing to it, not just one person. Um, but usually there's like, let's say there's six topics. There's usually like two one or two that are like really, really helpful topics. That I'm like, oh, this is actually something that applies to my clientele. And then there's a bunch that I'm like, has no application, but I'm a geek and I love reading. This is really interesting. And I just want to know more about this. Um, even if it's something like really intricate with powerlifting, we don't coach a ton of powerlifters. So I'm not going to really get a lot out of that. But if you're somebody who works with or is interested in the science of fat loss and muscle growth, this is the one for you. Like it's very, very specific to that. So, um, cannot recommend it enough. The link is in the description of the podcast. Now I do want to get into some specific topics, uh, today to cover some studies that you have used in your issues. Um, one of them was the highly processed foods. And I believe it was uh, a study on whether or not highly processed foods, uh, can be detrimental in a diet for physique goals. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. So what was the, what was the study and what was the purpose behind them doing the study?
1: Yeah. So the first thing I want to say, we have to appreciate that these weren't fitness enthusiasts that were eating processed foods. This a typical research study has obese people. These people were actually not obese. Um, they were normal people who just weren't resistance training Okay. and what they did. Now, this study was phenomenal. This was an easy hundred thousand dollar study to, to fund this because the people lived in a facility mm. for a month when they conducted this study. So what they did, they had people live in a facility and they had them follow a diet for two weeks and then they had a short um, washout period and then they had them follow another diet for two weeks. And the, the, the two diets that they followed were the first one, an ultra, this is their words, an ultra processed food diet. I'm just going to use the word highly processed, but they used the word ultra processed. And then the other one was a non-processed food diet. And essentially what they wanted to see was if every meal, every snack was coming from highly processed foods, what happens? And if every meal is coming from non-processed foods, or or let's just say very very minimal food processing, what happens? And, And again, they followed them for two weeks. And before I tell you the results, the incredible thing that's amazes me as a, you know, I'm a PhD in nutrition. They matched the diets for calories, for protein, for fiber, for sodium. So you would think, oh, well, of course the ultra processed food diet had more sodium and, and had more, um, had more carbs. They matched it all. Wow. Um, which is, again, speaks to the expense. Um, I, I'm assuming a pretty large kitchen staff to, to create these meal plans and the way that they did this, they matched the, so everybody got handed breakfast, everybody got handed a lunch, everybody got handed the dinner and what they, I'll just use it as an example. I don't know if this is how they did it. They said, here's your 500 calorie breakfast, or here's your thousand calorie lunch. Here's your 1500 calorie dinner under both conditions. So the initial meal that they were provided was the same calories, same whatever, but the people could eat as much of or as little of those meals as possible. So if they were hungry, they could have eaten three dinners. And then the other thing was they had snacks. They could get snacks whenever they wanted.
0: So should I jump into the results? Yes, but before you do, just to define, so people can get even more granular with this, um, is there a difference? Like, is there a tier for process, highly processed, and ultra processed? The reason I ask is because some people will say, "Don't eat any processed food," and then they're having protein shakes, and then other people will like bash them for having protein shakes. They're <laughs> like, "Hey, you're eating oatmeal. That's processed," and it's like, "Okay, it is." But it is. so, is there was there classifications with this?
1: Yeah. So th- there is a a what I'll call a research standard, and I. I, I don't remember. I, th- I believe it's out of South America the, the organization that's developed this, but the, the, the level of processing was ultra meaning three, four steps of food processing. Um, so as an example, a protein supplement, not that they took protein supplements, but that would be considered a processed food. My protein bars that I eat every day, that's considered a processed food. So that like the snacks, like walnuts, um, oatmeal, um, apples; um, those would be the types of foods that are considered non or let's just say uh, minimally processed. I think that's the words they use. Yeah. Because as you said, even oatmeal is processed. You don't you know you know pick oats out of the ground. You 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 refine them to some extent. Um, but the level between the ultra and the minimal was was quite large, and they they tried to they tried to. Um, emphasize that like yes this one was ultra processed um and i actually in in the body by science the issue and i think this was this is the free issue yeah this was the free issue so everybody can read this it was the um i give examples of the meals that they gave for breakfast lunch dinner um like i'm just trying to think uh like baked Lay's that was, uh, which I eat baked Lay's and I think, Oh good these, but that was one that was in the ultra processed food diet. I'm like, crap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I know there are a little fewer calories, but anyway, there's an example. So then, then obviously straight fruit would be, you know, there is no processing with, with straight up fruit and, and vegetables. Um, so that, hopefully that answered the question. There is a standard. I just don't know the intricacies of the difference, yeah. um, the levels of that.
0: I think that's perfect. I think for the meme, reason I just wanted people to have a a picture in their head of like, you know, it's the difference between oatmeal and Cheez-Its, you know, Cheez-Its are ultra processed. It's it's probably a carb. I mean, it's, there's other things amongst it, but ultra processed, who knows what it really is. Whereas oatmeal, it's oatmeal, but it went through a processing system. So, um, perfect. So go ahead and, and break down the results now that we have, have that out of the way. Yeah. So let's just focus on the body
1: composition results and these people weren't lifting weights. So th- there was not an emphasis on muscle mass and, and fat loss as much as body weight. So the, they actually gained the people on the ultra food process diet. They gained, actually, I'm going to talk about two things, the body composition or body weight and their, um, their feelings of hunger. So they measured both things. Mm. One of these really surprised me. Their body weight went up by about two pounds when they were during the two weeks of the ultra processed food diet. And that's not shocking. The other group, the minimally processed food diet, when they were eating that diet for two weeks, they actually lost about, I think, nearly two pounds. So a pretty big difference. And the, the next thing, as I was reading the study, the next thing you, you get to, and I, 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 I spell this out in, in the research review, there was no difference in hunger between the two groups. And I was just floored, I'm like, wow. Because I know when I eat highly processed foods, i am it's like I didn't eat it. I'm, I'm very hungry. So I'm like, that just, that doesn't make sense that the hunger levels were the same. And then you read more, you read a little further, and then, then it kind of, the light pops on. So the reason that their hunger levels were the same was because the ultra processed food diet, those, when they were on that diet, they ate approximately 500 additional calories per day. So the correct way to interpret their hunger response is, yeah, they were were just as full, but they had to eat 500 more calories of processed foods to feel full and then hence the weight gain. So Mm -hmm. it really confirmed everything we already thought we knew about eating a lot of processed foods. This was just the first study ever conducted where they had an actual intervention where a group was given, in this case, it was the same group, Highly processed foods for a couple of weeks and then minimally processed foods for two weeks. And then ultimately, I, I just look at a takeaway. If, if you're trying to optimize your physique, can you eat processed foods? And I'm going to say yes. Are you making it harder on yourself through with hunger and not feeling satiated? Yes. So you can do it. And and obviously, if you're going to try to optimize protein intake, that that's going to really limit the number of you know if your calories are getting lower, if you're eat, trying to meet a protein target, you are limited on how much processed foods you can eat in that type of diet. But if you're not trying to diet, processed foods, you can lose weight with them based on other research that we know. But you, you you've you've made your 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 goal more challenging to achieve. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think it's. Uh... I was shocked when you said that, and then when you explained further, it made more sense because I think that at the end of the day, and there's so many infographics on Instagram of this, like you know, 200 calories of chicken breast versus 200 calories of something else, and it's like like this tiny for 200 calories of a processed and then a huge portion of something that is, is uh, unprocessed because the food volume is higher, so you, you have more satiety, obviously. And I think that's one of the biggest things, but that's also one of the big things that I took away from your um, diet break research today where it was like five days on, two days off. Was really just it wasn't that five two is magic. It was that like if we fit one day with one day or two days with more calories within the weekly budget, we can allow people to have some of those. Because if we try to fit too much flexible dieting throughout the week during a diet, it's going to be very hard to stay within your caloric deficit. And I think that's where people get a little bit out of hand with flexible dieting is they assume that they should be just throwing in processed foods because you can. But it's like you might be shooting yourself in the foot because it's way easier to get through the, the fat loss phase if you just eat like a bro because you can have more food volume and that's okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. It's uh, again, you, you make your, you make your day more difficult the, the more processed foods.
0: I actually, it would be interested if you agree with this or if you've seen this, um, we were talking about my reverse diet right before we got on. And one of the things that I was really diligent about and that I typically recommend people if they do want to reverse diet a little bit slower is to, uh, Go ahead and start introducing calories and carbohydrates and things like that, but try not to reintroduce not so much ultra-processed but more like highly palatable foods back into the diet because, one, highly palatable foods are really hard to eat just a little bit of, and if you increase your calories just a little bit and you're trying to squeeze those foods in, it's just frustrating. You know? You can actually stay way more disciplined and consistent if you integrate whole foods and unprocessed foods and non-highly palatable foods. And the interesting thing I found was that In practice, one thing that people always say is like um, you need to introduce those calories and and then weight gain happens, you know, and that's what fixes the biofeedbacks when you put on some more fat. But most people don't get that lean. So what I've found is like if we keep the foods quote unquote clean, which I know is a bad word in the diet world, but if you keep the foods kind of clean, what happens is it's way easier to see how your body is actually improving its biofeedback just based on calories. And we can slowly them up and we can stay very consistent and we can do it and then you don't have nearly as many cravings as you would have if you went straight to the highly palatable foods after a diet it's like hey let's increase calories and wait on the the ben and jerry's and stuff for a little bit longer just to keep things under control and we will introduce those things soon when you have more control because as you know you have no uh inhibition and food control when you come fresh out of a, a hard cut it's like let's get your calories up in a controlled manner first and then go to those things when you have more control does that make sense Yes, it does. And, and I, I just think it would probably take a special,
1: highly disciplined person, mm-hmm. probably such as yourself to execute on that.
0: But mm-hmm. it, it, on paper, it's the way to go, yeah.
1: I, I, I would imagine.
0: Yeah. In um, a caveat, I would just say I didn't like I'm not talking about bodybuilders on stage because I don't know anybody, maybe David Goggins. But I don't know anybody <laughs> yeah. else who could do that after being on a bodybuilding stage. But for the everyday person we work with that loses 20 pounds and they're not shredded, but they're definitely leaner and they need to squeeze out a little bit more discipline for four weeks, I think it's possible, you know? Um, yes. So I love it. No, I think the the study on highly processed foods is really good. I think it's, it's a very applicable one. And um, I think as most things do, they kind of go in cycles, but like flexible dieting came in and it was like – A really big push for eating as much junk as you can. And now people are kind of starting to calm down with it. And it's like, Hey, when necessary, let's fit things in because we can, but it doesn't need to dominate your diet. And I think this is a good example of keeping a balanced approach and making it easier on yourself.
1: Yeah. And I would suggest for people who are evidence-based coaches, if you're ever, whenever you're going to talk about this with your clients, this study that, 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 is embodied by science. The one that I reviewed—that's the study that you tell people, like, listen, they they gained weight. Now again, there was no calorie restriction. I, I get it, but if what was standard was the hunger, the hunger levels were the same. The only reason they were the same is because they had to overeat to the point of gaining a significant amount of weight of the ultra-processed food. So I'm just—I just, just want to say. If you're an evidence-based coach, this is the study you're always going to point mm-hmm. to, to have a discussion with your client about, hey, let's be careful with processed foods. Yes, you can in certain situations. You keep putting them in. But do you want to or should you? This is the study.
0: Yeah. Before we get to the next slide, I just want to say two quick things. And one is that a lot of the the good thing about studies like this is it reinforces things we already kind of knew intuitively, but we didn't have proof of concept. So it's, it's beautiful to have those behind us. And then two, shameless plug for Body by Science. Again, this is why it's so useful is because while you're coaching people, I've done this countless times. I can pull up the PDF. I can look at it, read it, kind of cite it as a source and actually explain what happened in the study to a client. So they know I'm giving you evidence-based information. I'm, I'm telling you something. And if you want to know why I'm telling you this – here's the evidence to back it up. Like I'm not just pulling it out of my ass for lack of better terms. Um, And that's comforting for people. So it's a really good tool to have uh, sitting on your desk or on your computer. Uh, Now, the next study I wanted to talk about was the detraining one. And I believe it was taking like three weeks off and whether or not that harmed your gains. And I I wanted to talk about this one because one, I wanted to know if taking a break harmed your gains. But two, um, there's this talk about desensitization, like like either doing lower training volumes or taking, I think Brad Schoenfeld is doing or just recently did a study, um, cause he was on not too long ago, but he talked about just completely taking time off. And then when you return to training, you have this like sensitivity to hypertrophy, which I always assumed it would be, um, similar to the diet break. Like, you know, if you, if you increase calories, but then you come back to a deficit, like, the total amount of weeks dieting is still going to be the same. So my thought was the same with this. It's like, yeah, you have the sensitivity, but in the long run, you just missed X amount of weeks of training. So is it going to pan out? And I don't know the answer to that, but I feel like this kind of relates to it. So what was this specific study about?
1: So this study, and I'll, I'll give a little background, the the sensitization of taking a break. So yes, you you're, you're have a hypertrophy stimulus by lifting weights. And then if you take a couple of weeks off or some time off, at the cellular level, that's where that's the knowledge we've had so far. At the, at the muscle fiber level, there is evidence to suggest take some time off. And then when you go back to training, you're getting, they, have, they are more sensitive now to a hypertrophic stimulus of lifting weights. So we've had that in the cellular data, but we haven't had a study that's looked at this, at least in a robust manner. So this is the first study that I'm aware of that, that put this to the test in actual resistance training males. Now, when I say resistance training, they were not previously resistance trained. So there's one limitation we have to start right out with. So if if you're somebody who's been lifting for five or 10 years, would this apply to you? I don't know. I, um, I also would say we have no reason to assume that it would not, but we do have to appreciate this was in sedentary males who just started resistance training. And what they had them do was they had them lift weights, let's just say for half a year. So for six months, it was 24 weeks to be specific. They had one group of these males start a resistance training program for six months straight. They never took any time off. The other group, the D training group, they also were in the study for 24 weeks, but they didn't lift for 24 weeks. They only lifted for 18 weeks. And after every six weeks, They took a three-week detraining period, which was a complete cessation from training. They didn't lower their volume. They stopped lifting for three weeks. So lifted for six, three weeks off. Lifted for six, three weeks off, and then lifted for the final six weeks. So they really only had 75% of the training time as the other group. So what we found was at the end, the most broad application of the study is what happened at the end of the six months of training. No difference. They both gained a significant amount of muscle mass and they measured the muscle thickness. I think it was by ultrasound. Maybe it was MRI of the chest and triceps and both muscles had this had pretty much identical growth. So significant growth between um, both groups. So, Regardless of what happens during your time off, do you gain, do you lose, what happens? At the end of six months, they had the same growth. Now, what was really interesting is when you look at, well, what happened during those three weeks of taking time off? And what happened was they lost, there was a quite, quite a decrease in their muscle mass during the three weeks. But what happened was when they went back to training, they had a much more robust response to their training in the next six week blocks. And then the same thing happened again. So in theory, if you were to look at the graphs and try to look ahead, what would happen for the next six months, an argument could be made that the group that kept taking three weeks off over time would gain more muscle. Now, again, that's theoretical. That's extrapolating what, what would happen based on past results. Uh, and, and I would just add, the I think the overriding conclusion to the study is this seemed to confirm what the cellular data was, was reporting, that there is a resensitization of an anabolic response after some time off. Does it happen in uh, performance-enhanced athletes? I don't know. Does it happen in somebody like you and me who's been training for many years? I don't know. Uh, I do know that probably most people don't train every week for six months. I know I don't. Either I get sick and I take some time off, or I'm an old guy, I get back pain sometimes that forces me to, to really slow down what I'm doing, or I'm just lazy. So again, this these, these guys weren't lazy. I'm just saying this is a very life-applicable study, and at a minimum we can say, Hey, if you do need to take some time off, it's okay. It's not the end of the world based on this one study.
0: Uh, one of the the things I love about this one too, which honestly, I'm kind of, I was actually surprised by the result, but, um, I've had the question so many times, like, uh, people who are just gym rats like myself and they'll ask podcast questions, say I'm going on vacation or I'm going to Europe for two weeks and I can't train or I have nothing but a band. What should I do? And I often say, I'm like, just don't do anything. Like, you're fine. Nothing bad will happen. You will totally survive. Your biceps will not fall off. I promise. <laughs> but some people have such a hard time believing that. Um, and this proves that to be true, um, to an even greater extent, because three week breaks every so often is, is pretty significant, honestly. But do we have yes. any research to point to like where, um, I guess where the sensitive, uh, sensitization is a hard word to say increases. So I'm thinking like, okay, does this work like a diet break where some, you know, you could do it for five days, every 15 days, you could do it for one week, every three weeks, you can do it for two weeks, every six weeks, like you can kind of switch it up. Or do you have to train for so long before that is something you can implement? And do you have to do it for at least three weeks to be able to see that? Because in my mind, I'm like, well, if I could take a week off every six weeks, I could see myself doing something like that, especially if I could reap the reward from it. Um, but I love training so much. Taking three weeks off is actually just difficult.
1: Yeah. So a quick answer is I don't, I'm not aware of research to suggest, hey, how, how can we, um, how can we tailor this to less time or a, 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 a different ratio of time lifted versus time off? We just don't have it. Um, I would suggest, and I'll give two scenarios. Let's look at a worst case scenario for somebody. Um, and I also want to mention Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. She gave some arguments that I don't. She didn't care what the study said. There's there's some good rationale that you don't want to take time off, and I love to see that because I like you. I was like, wow, three weeks. Like I w- I would have thought, let's take a week off. They took three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, one thing I always tell people is, let's say you do take time off, and you do lose muscle mass. Oh, that's horrible. Well, we have to appreciate that muscle is not lost forever. It is very well. It's much easier to regain previously gained muscle than to build it the first time. So if you, if you have your situation where you have to take time off and then you go back to training, that mu- the muscle that you lost, it's not gone forever. You'll get it back and you'll get it back quickly. Now, to be fair, that's still time, whatever time that was, that you weren't able to build new muscle. So there is the potential real life loss. So I, I, I will acknowledge that but I also want to put people at ease. You're not building this from, from the ground up. You already have the satellite cells are, um, in the muscle. It's called the myonuclear domain theory. Um, and I think that's the best uh, answer to why is it that we can gain our muscle back after taking time off? So I put some people at ease and I'll also listen to, I don't want to take any time off because I'm not gaining any new muscles. I, and I can appreciate that argument.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's one more thing I would toss out there that um, I would love to see research on and I don't think you can give me an answer. I just want to hear your thoughts. But, you know, there's obviously um, when we change up our training, there's this novelty stimulus, right? Where we do see a lot of muscle damage, a lot of soreness. Sometimes for people, I think there's only one research study I'm familiar of, and I want to say I, I read Greg Knuckles' review on it way back. And they they're basically trying to figure out is there any uh, merit to like shocking the body, right, by changing up your training? And the only time they really found it was when um, they took Olympic lifters who had never done anything else, and they put them on a bodybuilding program, and they saw this rapid increase of gains, even though they were advanced. Versus taking somebody from different types of programming, but. My, my theory or my question about this would be, is there a way to still train and get that sensitization effect? So if we were doing six weeks of hypertrophy training and then a three week, very low volume strength block followed by six week training, do we lose less muscle tissue and glycogen and all those satellite cells and everything in that three week period and still get the joy of being able to train, but still increase sensitivity to a degree? obviously probably not as much but would we still be able to see an increase and then we can kind of alternate cuz as of now there's really no scientific research to say this is the best periodization for hypertrophy it's all just kind of strength literature and then hypertrophy coaches determining what they think would be best
1: yeah i, I think there would be a resensitization i do think though the magnitude would be less and and a proper interpretation of the study is the people who continued to train they gained just as much muscle mass yeah. so um, and if you look during the three-week detraining periods, there was a bi- there was a a significant drop in muscle mass. Now we'll call it lean mass. Some of it was glycogen. I'm sure maybe some body water. Um, so it, we can appreciate maybe it wasn't all just loss of muscle or it shrunk to nothing. But there was a definitive loss of muscle during their three weeks off. But the rebound that they experienced was, it was like the first six weeks of training. So I, I, I'll explain it like this too. And again, I, I'm looking at the figure that I created in, in the body by science. But the, the rate of hypertrophy over the 24 weeks got less and less and less in the group that never took the break. The, the, the group of male trainers that kept taking the, the three-week breaks, yes, they had a drop but their rate of hypertrophy was still like the first six weeks of training every six weeks. So again, it kind of reinforces this, they just were more sensitized to the stimulus from the, from the resistance exercise.
0: Right. Which is why in theory, if you could carry it out for 18 months, maybe they would have gained more. That's yes. If,
1: if this study, if the if the same progression were observed in the next six months, the the subjects taking the breaks would have had a much i would say a significantly greater increase in muscle mass but that's that's a danger i mean as a scientist you can't you 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 don't you want to be careful about making assumptions on what happened in the past because that's nothing is linear Mm i've you know i I lost two pounds tomorrow at this pace i'll I'll lose 100 pounds in two months like you got to be careful (laughs) things aren't linear
0: yeah Uh, i would be uh my interest is always, and that's why like, I think it's important to, obviously, again, it's theory, but it's important to think long term because my interest is not, because if I had to choose between the two and I knew I'd get the same gains no matter what, I'd train consistently because I love training and it keeps me in the gym and it's a good healthy habit to keep in. There's other benefits from a health perspective to training, but if I knew that I could gain more by doing that, then I might consider it, you know, and I think what I would love to see done next is taking that three-week window and shortening it by 50% right? Making it a, a week and a half or a week. Um, because then in that six month period, you might take more of those, but you still have more weeks of actual training done. And it's like, do we still get that effect or does it diminish when we reduce that? Cause, um, most of the time when I've heard of sensitization blocks, it's usually taking like after six plus months of hypertrophy training, taking a full four week block of like low volume strength training. That's like kind of classic, um, sensitization periodization for, bodybuilders that I'm aware of with like Mike Isretel and stuff like that. Um, So I'd be really interested if, if you would still get that effect by shortening those, those rest week windows.
1: Yeah. And I'm just curious. When was you, do you ever take time off? Do you take, or you've been training weekly for years,
0: years? I think so. I took, uh, I think I took four or five days off when I got COVID um, a year ago And
1: by, but you were forced, right? You just couldn't get out of bed or
0: you just thought, Oh,
1: I better not lift.
0: I better not lift. It didn't really hit me hard to be honest. And the funny thing is is like the day I tested positive, I actually did back squats. Like I was fine. I I was lifting and stuff. And I was like, I should probably just take a home test. And then it tested positive. And then I went to the the doctor and I I was positive. So I took a few days off, but I was kind of already on the tail way down. Um, So the really, the only time I've taken time off in the last decade, literally last decade is if I travel and for me, I usually don't travel more than a few days. And if, if I do, I usually get something in. I usually like being active, even if it's a hike or something, but not resistance training. So I'll take three or four days off on a trip. Um, but otherwise, it's been extremely, extremely consistent because it's just a part of my life. That's just what I do.
1: Yeah. yeah. So even what you just said, you've probably never have taken a week, seven days mm-hmm. off from lifting weights. I don't think so. Yeah, that's... That's good. That's that's impressive. That that's a that's a high level of discipline. I I cannot say the same.
0: The thing I will throw out here too is, um, I always tell this to people like it's not to impress you, because to to let you know it's very hard for me not to. I mean my schedule, my lifestyle, everything revolves around. I have a garage gym. I'm staring at a two thousand square foot gym right here. Like I can't really go somewhere where I don't have easy access to weights and an, a flexible schedule that allows me to do it. Um, so it's extremely hard for me not. literally close my eyes and don't look at the weights like that's the only way or i have to get extremely sick but i I haven't got super sick in a long time so um yeah knock on wood uh but uh so i'd be interested and i i gotta imagine and i'm sure you would feel the same um there's probably going to be more research on this topic because i think this is a pretty cool finding and usually when stuff comes out like this um more and more keeps coming out because there's a million questions What what about this what about this what about this and then they make another study, another study. So um, hopefully we'll see more on this subject.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Shell Felt already has two studies half done <laughs> looking
0: at this. Yeah, exactly. So the last one I wanted to touch on is the uh, newer diet break study you did. Um, and this one was interesting because uh, it, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was a 25% deficit and then I know it was, it was intermittent dieting. So I can't remember the exact parameters of how they put in the diet breaks. But I believe it was a female-only diet break research study, right? Cool. So that's what I actually liked about it because as you know, not as much research is done on women. Um, However, if we look at, I would probably say the entire online coaching space, the vast majority of people who hire online nutrition coaches are women. So this is one of the most applicable diet break studies because it's just about women and fat loss. So um, what was the study titled and, and what was it about?
1: Yeah, So, and and I'll also add, it was resistance-trained women that that we had as subjects. Um, And I also need to thank Madeline Seedler. She was my master's student at the time who ran this, and she did a phenomenal job with that study. Uh, The study is not published yet. It was accepted for publication in the Journal of Human Kinetics, so give it a few months. Hopefully, it will be published soon. Um, What we did, we took resistance-trained females who were not overweight, Um, And these were not physique athletes. So they were not sub 20% body fat. They were, you know, not overweight, but probably low Low. I'm estimating. I don't remember exactly, but low twenties for body fat percentage. So again, don't think stage lean bikini competitors, but fit females that have been resistance training. We put both of them on a six week diet Uh, 20, on average, 25% caloric deficit per week. So the one group, the continuous dieting group, they dieted straight for six weeks. The other group also dieted for six weeks. But after the first three weeks, they took a one week diet break where they increased their calories back to maintenance calories. Then they dieted another, um, was it two? I think it was two, two, one, two, one, two. So they had two one-week diet breaks during their during their eight-week intervention. So again, two weeks dieting, one week diet break, two weeks dieting, one week diet break, and then they ended with two additional weeks of dieting. So same six weeks of dieting, just took one group a little extra time because of their diet breaks. And what we found after, you know, after the intervention was. Did they lose more body fat? Were they able to maintain their muscle mass? That was my hypothesis. Um, Based on my other research in diet refeeds where there was a a maintenance of muscle mass, I thought, well, maybe this will happen here. What we found was there was no difference between the two groups in any body composition measure. So they both lost a significant amount of body fat. Um, I can't remember, maybe 2% uh, body fat over the, the six weeks. Uh, they both maintained their muscle mass, uh, their metabolic rate did not change. So, and I have a couple thoughts um, and let's get into those thoughts. And then I want to bring in one other finding that, that was, that happened to be the most impactful finding um, that actually now is the second study to show this. So first of all, we have to appreciate diet breaks aren't harmful. If you want to go on a diet break, you're not you're hurting yourself at all in the long run. Um, now you do have to admit you're going to, it is going to elongate your diet phase, but if that fits your lifestyle better, you're not, you're not gaining fat. You're, you're not, you know, there's no benefit and there's no loss. It's just, if this works for you in your lifestyle, do it. If it doesn't don't at the end of the, at the end of your diet phase, it's all the same. So to speak, um, I would also need to say this, I think diet breaks, are only gonna have utility if the diet itself causes some harm. What do I mean by that? If your diet is severe and it would cause a loss of muscle mass and it would cause a suppression of metabolic rate, that is where a diet break has the potential to be helpful. Our subjects never got to that point. The group that dieted six weeks straight, they didn't lose any muscle mass. So we were not, the the diet wasn't severe enough to cause negative adaptations where a diet break could potentially help. Mm. So I can phrase this a different way. If a diet break is going to work, it's most likely going to work in a physique athlete dieting for a show, because those, those are long diet periods, long caloric deficits, severe caloric deficits, a lot of exercise. So you almost have to have harm (laughs) and then the diet break. increases in utility and value. That's my current thought on this. I don't know if you had a thought on that, but, and then I do want to mention the one finding that we, that we reported.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would agree a hundred percent. I think that, um, that kind of solidifies my thinking behind them too. Oftentimes with clients that we work with, we'll implement them, um, later on and they might become a, a common use of them for us is every two to three weeks doing a one week diet break. Um, and sometimes every four weeks, it's kind of like depending on the person. And, and for us, it's like how many weeks can you diet before there is some kind of physiological or psychological stress. But oftentimes we'll diet for six to eight weeks straight before even implementing them. So it's kind of a reactive thing. Um, however, if it's psychological, we can, it could be a two day, it could be a four day, it doesn't need to be a full week necessarily. It's just like when we need to give them a break. Um, I, and, and for people listening and this might be interesting to you too, because a lot of it is psychological. Um, We've even seen a lot of positive benefits of giving people one or two days, not tracking their diet. And I've even experimented with having a client track it after the fact. A a client that I I trust um, from like, I don't think the diet is doing any harm for them from a stress perspective. Because I was interested, like now that you did the intuitive break, we didn't gain any weight. Can you track those calories like from your best knowledge? I want to see how much extra you ate. And- most of the time they didn't even eat anything more. It was just such a relief to not have to track in my fitness pal. Their macros were kind of screwy. Maybe they ate a little more, maybe they ate a little less. But the psychological break from the numbers actually helped a lot too in some cases. So if there's no stress from a muscle and a performance and a hormone perspective, I think that can use uh, be very useful as well. Um, so, I mean, in general, my thoughts are very, very similar. I think that um, the only time I, I would say – that a diet could potentially cause stress sooner on is if you have somebody who's highly stressed in the first place, if you have a mother, a single mother of three who's working a full-time job and trying to lose fat and deficit, maybe that stress applies a little bit quicker and a diet break might come in handy sooner uh, because there's so many different stresses going on, but it's hard to create a study with a bunch of stressed out moms losing fat. It's, it's not like it happened. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Our
1: subjects were mostly college aged um, resistance trained. Mm -hmm. Uh, by the way, if, if I'm ever your client and y- you can't trust me if I'm not tracking, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> if I'm tracking, there's nobody better. If I'm not, there's nobody worse. <laughs> it's, it's a I've learned that about myself.
0: <laughs> uh, um, okay. Yeah. So uh, I agree with that though. What, what are the, I think you said there was more findings with it or is that? Yes. It? Okay. So
1: w- in addition to the body composition and metabolic rate, variables that we measured we also looked at some psychology measures some hunger psychology measures mm-hmm. so we used a questionnaire notice the three factor eating inventory there's three uh the three factor questionnaire and that measured three things hunger disinhibition and restraint and i'll just say hunger there was no difference um didn't matter about diet break or not um, restraint was also the same that's your ability to say no to food um, generally and that was not that was the same But the other term, the other variable, psychological variable was called disinhibition. And i hate that word because it's like a double negative. But disinhibition is if you score higher on that, that means that you are more likely to overeat in a stressful situation or in the presence of highly palatable foods. So you don't want your disinhibition score to go higher. You would like it to stay, stay low or go lower. What we found in our study, and this is only half of my, my short story here, there was a significant difference between the two groups. The groups that took the diet break, they, they tended to get lower in their disinhibition, which means that they were not susceptible to overeating in a stressful situation or in the presence of highly palatable food. But the group that never took a break when they dieted six weeks straight, their disinhibition source went the other way. They increased. Again, meaning that they were more likely to overeat in certain situations. So that's very interesting. We then compare, okay, so how did other studies compare with this? There's been one other study that I'm aware of that used resistance trained athletes, males and females. This was the study that was done in Australia. I think that it was published in 2021. And they found, they didn't use this inhibition, but they found very similar findings. A, the group of resistance-trained athletes taking diet breaks, they had significantly less hunger and a significantly lower desire to eat. So it's funny because when you start now piling on, finding from one study in the same population or similar population to another, what I think we're learning is diet breaks – against the the beliefs of some people that it's hard to come out of them because you just want to eat everything in sight. It actually has the opposite effect. At least it does in resistance trained people. They actually have better better hunger scores. They're not as hungry. They have a lower desire to eat. And in our case, they were less susceptible to overeating um, in a stressful situation. And I What's the reason for that? I don't know, but it may be because they were allowed to have some foods that they otherwise had to keep, you know, saying, no, these are off limits. And since they were allowed to have them during diet breaks, they were just chill. I don't know. I don't know of a measure that would measure that or or a variable that would measure that, but that's two studies reporting nearly the exact same findings in terms of hunger psychology.
0: That's really helpful because you know, And I've agreed with this argument to an extent, too, where somebody who has way more weight to lose, maybe they have 40, 50, 60 pounds, a lot of weight, there's really no merit for a diet break because there's no physiological stress or damage or issues that's going to happen. You have so much weight to lose, you'll be totally fine. However, this would kind of slap that theory in the face because you won't even be able to get to the end point. If, if you don't allow yourself to improve that aspect of disinhibition. Um, and it also makes sense too, like uh, um, I've heard Mike Isretel use this as an example for I think deloads and he's so great with like weird analogies, but he talked about weekends. If you just had to week uh, work seven days a week over and over and over I again, mean, you'd be dying for a vacation, but you have weekends off. So it's easy to get motivated to work on Monday. And I think it's the same thing with dieting. When you take a weekend off, if you go on a vacation, if if you take a week off from the gym, it's the same thing. You come back more motivated. You don't come back lazier or wanting to eat more garbage food. You come back, you're like, man, I can't wait to eat clean again and eat normal or get back to the gym. Like you're excited because that nor that routine that is normally a challenge or something that kind of pushes you and is hard to get into at first is actually exciting because you've been off, you've been on vacation, you've been eating kind of crappy over the weekend, whatever it may be. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a really, really useful application of them.
1: Yeah. And just one study publishing that finding, it's like, Oh, that's interesting. But now two, Yeah. In resistance trained people. I mean, I, I, I think you now you can't just, you have to appreciate there's something there.
0: Yeah. Hundred percent. Um, I love it, man. All right. Well, we're gonna wrap this up. Uh, we've covered quite a bit. I'm excited about this episode. We've done um I think we've done all these studies uh, justice, and I'm glad that I got to have you on and talk about Body by Science as well. I know you have more in the works, so you'll be back on in the near future to talk about some other things. But for now, um, Body by Science is the main thing we wanted to to get to the people, and I'll link all that in the description for you guys so you can check it out. It's extremely affordable, and it's one of the most useful tools you'll have in your coaching. Um, but also, if you're just a recreational physique athlete, if you're just somebody who loves training and you're not a coach and you listen to this podcast, number one, if you like this podcast, you'll love that content because it is it is the, the highest level of that content. And I got to be featured in, in one of the, uh, the issues actually discussing, um, a ketogenic diet for physique enhancement, as well as volume and how we program that. Um, which again is one of the most useful things is the coach's application inside of it after following up the researcher, actually diving into it, which is you. Um, so real quick, just because we always do this, where can everybody follow you just one more time? So, um, your, your site, your Instagram, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. So Instagram is bill Campbell, PhD. And I do a lot of education on there and my website and my website is basically body by science. Uh, that's bill Perfect.
0: We'll link those in the description. And guys, if you like uh, Bill's content, and you want to learn more from him on podcast format, go to iTunes, go to YouTube, go to Spotify, just search his name. He's been interviewed countless times. Um, you can find a ton of content online that's not on his site or on his Instagram, but is out there in the interwebs he's featured everywhere so (laughs) go check him out there uh bill thank you for coming on once again it was a blast and uh yeah we'll catch you back soon all right thank you